Lord God, thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be here this morning to worship you, to and to hear your word, Lord. I pray you give us uh, the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your love. And show us more about who you are. Show us your majesty and show us your glory this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a story that I read. It's an interesting story. And it begins like this. The whole castle was astir. The monarch was 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 paying a long-awaited royal visit. Elaborate preparations had consumed the preceding months. A newly constructed tower stood ready, furnished with royal apartments to house the sovereign and her upon her visit. The Earl of Leicester, lord of the castle, rode out to meet his beloved queen. Much pomp and pageantry ensued. Seven miles from the castle, he had erected a luxurious pavilion, and there he furnished his sovereign and her entourage a sumptuous dinner. And finally, and they finally approached the castle. The queen could see the massive structure illuminated by thousands of torches and candles. The pillars of the drawbridge were elaborately adorned with fruit and vines. Hanging on the vines were musical instruments and armor, all Latin with meaning, all Latin with meaning. A floating island appeared in the moat and lavishly decorated characters humbly offered, oh, I'm sorry, a floating island appeared in the moat and lavishly decked, in the moat and lavishly decorated characters humbly offered the queen the keys to her castle. As a monarch entered the royal suite, guns were fired and fireworks were set off. It is said that when the queen mentioned her disappointment to her host that she could not see the formal garden from a window, the mortified earl hastily conscripted an army of laborers and constructed an identical garden outside her window overnight. Who was this monarch? the recipient of such homage, Queen Elizabeth I. She would spend 10 days at a famous castle at Kenilworth in July, 1575. This morning, we're gonna be looking at a similar story. We're gonna be looking at a similar, uh, a similar event about a king, tri a king's triumphal entry into the capital of his future kingdom and how dismayed he was afterwards. Now, chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. Begins, is the beginning of the last third of Mark's gospel and focuses on what appears to be the last seven days of Jesus' life. This is also, the beginning here of our passage is also what we typically celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's a description of, of why we celebrate Palm Sunday. 
Today we're going to be reading about the events that took place the day Jesus entered Jerusalem and the following day. In the passages we're about to cover, we will examine how Jesus fulfilled yet another prophecy when he entered Jerusalem, the reason he cursed a fig tree, and his reaction to seeing God's holy temple being misused and mishandled, and what it has to teach us. My aim, my goal this morning, is to show you that although the events of these first two days were prophetically significant to the nation of Israel, Jesus' actions also have some spiritual implications that are significantly important to us as believers. So if you're not there already, please turn to your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 and follow along as I start from the beginning. Mark chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 1. When he approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street tied to a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying that donkey? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw, and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna. He who comes in the name of the Lord is who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went to Jerusalem he went into Jerusalem and looked into the temple complex. After and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it is already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I want to show you a map here of the area we're going to be talking about. This is the area that we're that we're going to be pretty much covering uh, during this during this uh, passage this morning during our chapter in chapter 11. Here we have Jericho which is where we covered last week in Jericho, the last part of Jericho, I mean, the last part of Mark chapter 10. And he travels southwest towards Bethany. And right next to Bethany, to the west, is, is Bethpage. Now again, um, Bethany, Bethpage and Bethany are located just southwest of Jericho and about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. Now before Jesus and his disciples um, enter Jerusalem, he sends two of them on a mission with some specific instructions. The first thing he tells them is, go into the village of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey there, which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Then he says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it right back. We'll send it back right away. We'll send it back here right away. Now, some will argue that Jesus was sending those two disciples 
on a secret mission to steal a donkey. Some will actually say that there was something sneaky, something conniving about Jesus going out and not actually not going himself and asking for the donkey. That he was sending his these two guys to commit a crime for him. But that's not the case at all. In reality, there was a purpose behind it. Jesus was consciously fulfilling a prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding in the donkey. Now this prophecy was something that the Jewish people were familiar with and they were expecting. In ancient times, whenever a king rode into a city, a large city or a town, he would come in with a bunch of pomp and pageantry people would be following and um, yelling and shouting songs of praise. People were following, and he would, and the king would come riding on his most glorious, his strongest, his most favorite horse. And this horse, more than likely, a lot of times was dressed up in fine linen, um, the finest uh, jewels and it just, this horse looked majestic. They were used to, a lot of these ancient cultures, they were used to a king riding into a town or city in, in, in a horse, but not the Jews. For them, they were waiting for their king to arrive in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now notice also that Jesus wanted to ensure that the donkey had never been ridden and never been sat on. This is because in the Jewish culture only the king could ride on the king's animals. The son couldn't ride on it, family couldn't ride on it, servants couldn't ride on it. Only the king was allowed to ride on that horse. So by ensuring that this donkey had never been ridden they were, they were preparing it to become the king's royal donkey. And sure enough, when those two disciples entered into that town, everything happened just as Jesus said it would, without a hitch. Everything he said that would happen, everything he told them to say, they said it. They repeated exactly what Jesus told them to say. Now, some translation scholars believe that, that these two disciples weren't just simply saying, you know what, um, can we borrow the horse? Um, you know, tell the, the master needs it. Um, Jesus wasn't telling them to, to it, was sim it was something simple as that. But it was much more strong, there was much more, uh, there was a much more stronger language there. But rather he was telling, he was having, wanting them to say that the sovereign one, the king of the Jews, requires that donkey. Now before I go on, let me ask you,
Have you ever wondered why the creator of the universe would want to borrow anything? Why God would want to use us or anybody to borrow anything? If Jesus wanted to, he could have asked. He could have went up to that person or those people that, that owned that donkey and he could have said, hey, you know what? Give me your donkey. I want it. He could have asked for it himself. He could have even miraculously gotten down in the dirt and created a donkey from the dirt, from that dirt. But he didn't. Well, I think we're given, uh, I think 2 Corinthians 8 9 gives us a good indication, gives us a good answer to that question. There it says, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. You see, he chose to place himself in a position where he would need to partner with us in order to see his will worked out through us. Instead of doing everything himself, instead of doing all the works himself, he uses us as willing participants to prepare us for the day when, we'll e when we will eternally reign with him. And let me give you a picture about what I mean. Let me show you. Paul writes in Romans 8, in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He also writes in second and in Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 for we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us so in case you're asking what does this participation look like let me tell you, when you pray, when you study the Bible, when you worship, when you share your witness and testimony, and when you fellowship with other believers, you are actively participating with Christ. You see, and somehow, in God's great economy, his blessing and moving in this world are dependent upon your participation. So everything you do for Jesus Christ and in the name of Jesus Christ absolutely matters. Verse 7 then says, Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and they threw their robes on it and he sat on it can't have a, a king riding in a donkey not making it look nice. I mean, that's what I would imagine. That not only did they put a saddle in, but they used it also to dress up this donkey to make it look more royal. On that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city, the donkey walked over the equivalent, equivalent of a red carpet created by the clothes of the people. This is what we're talking about here. Here we have Bethany and Bethpage. 
and this is the route. This is the Mount of Olives. And we're going to be covering this too in just a minute. But this is pretty much the route that Jesus took. And as he enters the city, as he enters the city of Jerusalem, this is where we see him riding into a donkey. And before he enters the, the city of Jerusalem, um, he is greeted with palm trees. He's greeted with robes. Um, again, he is, this is a big celebration. This is a big deal. Thousands of, they say thousands of people were possibly there. Now those who were following behind, we're told that those who were leading and those who were following behind were crying out, Hosanna. Now how many of you guys know what Hosanna means? It actually means, Lord save us. So as they're crying out, as Jesus is entering, they're crying out, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Now I think a big portion of them were thinking about saving them from, again, the Roman oppressors, from the government that was, that was uh, cheating them and treating them badly. But I think others really meaning it from the heart. Lord, save us. Save us. We can't do it ourselves. Save us, Lord. And then we also see in verse 9, along with Hosanna, that we're also quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26, where it says, He who comes in the name of the Lord is a blessed one. That section, and sometimes, again, it surprises me that they were quoting Old Testament scripture. They were quoting from Psalms, and here they were now, shouting and yelling to Jesus. The same thing. Now we see in verse 11 that as soon as they, Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple complex where he spends some time looking around before returning to Bethany. You may not know this, but in 586 BC, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision when Jerusalem was destroyed and his people were taken into exile by the Babylonians. In that vision, Ezekiel saw the glory of God rise up from the temple in Jerusalem. The glory that was there, the glory that was at that temple, God's glory that was enveloping God's temple ascended 300 feet to the rest of the Mount Olives. Now we see, now we see Jesus, who in Hebrews 1.3 described, is described as the radiance of God's glory, descend the Mount of Olives and Bethany and entering the temple in Jerusalem. Let me put that together. Let me try to put that together for you. In 586 BC, the glory of God left the temple. But when Jesus came, the glory of God came back. Ladies and gentlemen, one day soon, one day soon, Jesus will come back. Rather, this time, when he does come back, he's not going to come back on a donkey. And he's not going to come back to suffer and die. Rather, he's going to come back with power and with glory to reign as king. Let me give you a couple of examples here of what, what I mean. 
when Jesus ascended to heaven, after he rose from the dead and, and he spent some time with his disciples, and he rose up to heaven, the disciples could no longer see them. They were staring up there until they just were staring at nothing. And then two angels appeared and told all the witnesses that were there, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now John gives us more detail in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to read that to you because it, it, this also is very interesting and in how it gives us an indication how we're going to see Jesus coming back. It's in Revelation verse 19, um, chapter 19, verse 11. And John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. He's no longer on a donkey. He's on a horse now. Its rider was, is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes, his eyes were like fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure and white linen. A sharp sword came out of his mouth that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty, and his name and, it, and has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a glorious way. What a, this is going to be a magnificent, jaw-dropping return of Christ. I honestly believe that before it even gets there, if we're believers, if you're a believer in Christ, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, we'll be raptured. And I believe that, that uh, the description that, that is given about the other writers writing with him is going to be us. We're going to be the ones following behind Jesus, crying out, shouting, yelling. But again, this is going to be a different coming. This is going to be a different, and, and, and do I believe it? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. But what do we do in the meantime? Until that day happens, what do we do? Our hearts and mouths should never stop crying out to Jesus, just like the song that was just on, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us now. Come for us. We're waiting for you. Please come. Now let's keep reading. I want to read our next story here as we pick up in chapter 12, or in verse 12. The next day when they came out to Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find, he went to find out if there was anything on it. Then he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. 
For those who ever doubted the humanity of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, verse 12 is further evidence that he had the same human characteristics as we, as we have. Do you guys wake up hungry in the morning? Do you guys wake up wanting something to eat? I think, I mean, I do. I used to tell Robin, where's the eggs? You know, where's, you know, where's, or I, you know, I know my kids are always looking for their bowl of cereal and, you know, and if they don't eat, man, it ruins their whole day. But again, Jesus woke up that morning and was hungry. Now as the story continues out in the distance, as his stomach is rumbling and as it's making noises, out in the distance he sees a fig tree. And he, as he goes out to, t to see it, waiting to just um, have his meal and just have that bite of that fig, when he gets there, there's nothing there. There's nothing but leaves on it. Now, although Mark tells us that it wasn't the season of fig trees, the fact that this fig tree still had leaves on it, it meant that it should have had fruit. It meant that it should have at least unripe fruit, that it should have had something there. Even if it, was, even if it wasn't the season for fig trees, it had leaves on it. Hence, hence it was a barren fig tree. That tree was actually barren. You see, this fig tree, despite its leaves, had the appearance of fruitfulness, but it was actually fruitless. Jesus was now staring at an object. He was looking at an object right in front of him that illustrated the sin of hypocrisy, meaning that it, it appeared to be something that in reality it wasn't. Jesus here, again, was demonstrating the danger of spiritual hypocrisy as evident in the temple leaders and as evident of any religious person that, you know, that we may know or that is, is around today. Basically demonstrating, again, having the trappings of religion, the leaves, without true transformation. There was no fruit. So he said to this tree, may no one eat, from, eat fruit from you again. Now in all the miracles Jesus ever conducted, and all the things and all the wonderful things he ever did, this was the only destructive one. It reveals to us the seriousness, the seriousness of God's displeasure when something has the appearance of fruit, but has none. Now some, again, will argue that Jesus cursed this tree out of a fit of hungry rage. I think all of us can relate to that. We're, we're hungry and we don't get to eat. We get pretty angry. But on the contrary, this wasn't, this wasn't the fact at all. Cursing the fig tree was actually an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy because he was sparing others who might be hungry from being deceived. You see, because it wasn't able to provide fruit for Jesus, because that tree was barren, because that tree was fake, it wouldn't have been able to provide fruit 
for anyone else. And this kind of reminds me of a personal story that, that happened to me when I was a kid. I was probably, what, 12, 13 years old. I woke up one morning and, and hungry, and I, I guess that morning I really was craving my favorite Frosted Flakes. You know, that was my cereal as a kid. You know, my, my cornflakes, you know, as we called it in, at home. And as I'm walking down a hallway and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I can't wait to have my bowl of cereal, there in the distance, in a short distance, on the table was a bowl of cereal with the box right next to it. I was like, no way, someone just hooked me up. How exciting, I was like, you know, I was like blessed and I was like, um, I, and I couldn't tell my mom thank you because she wasn't, she was probably still in bed and my brother was still getting ready. And so I was like, yeah. So I sat down, I was like, yeah, you know, and said my, my prayer and then, and, uh, and I started eating, there was something weird about the bowl of cereal. I was like, what? What's going on here, you know? And as I started eating it, it, it occurred to me, this bowl isn't right, there's something wrong, you know, there's something wrong. And then next thing you know, my brother comes out, he's like, oh, you're eating that? And I'm like, whoa, what's wrong? He's like, that was my bowl from last night. And I was like, what? Are you serious? This is like, you had, yeah, it's been sitting there, what, eight hours, nine hours? And I was like, don't tell me that, please. That's, and, I, and, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, I just started feeling green and, and I started feeling pale and I was like, this is you know, disgusting. This is gross. And sure enough, later on, I ended up paying for it. You know, I think I went to school that day, or I think it was a weekend actually. But man, was my stomach jacked up, and I was sick all day. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever eaten day-old milk and you know cereal there. And I should, again, I should have known the cereal was soggy, it was sitting there. You know, again, but in my mind, I'm just starving and hungry. And um, but here again, I and what did I do? I just didn't. You know, the thing is, I didn't leave it there. You know. I knew better. I got the bowl and I dumped it down the sink, and you know, so that nobody else made that same mistake. And I, and I, I was like, man, I'm gonna get my brother back. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get back to him. I'm gonna get him back. Anyways, I dumped it down the sink. Again, this is this cereal. This story had the appearance of something that it wasn't. It had the appearance of being fresh cereal and good cereal when it wasn't, and I ended up paying for it. Now, going back to our story, at this particular moment, we're not necessarily given Jesus' explanation for cursing that fig tree. We're gonna be covering that next week. But this, but this barren fig tree is a good, a good illustration regarding those who have the appearance of being fruitful but are really not. Like the religious temple leaders, there are many people who have the outward look of being good Christians, but don't display any spiritual fruit in their lives. What I mean is that there are many Christians who, when viewed from a distance, when viewed from, an outs from the outside, they appear to be fruitful. 
They serve in their churches and participate in religious activities. They use the right words. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the word Christianese, but they use the right words and speak like Christians. They have that right look. I mean, you, you know, with some people, you just look at them and say, oh, that guy's a Christian. I just know that he is. And, um, you know, he has that look. He has that look of a good moral person. But in reality, all they are are nice leaves without any fruit. There's no fruit of love. There's no fruit of leading people to Christ. There's no fruit of works of righteousness. There's no fruit of financial giving. There's no fruit of praise. I, I honestly believe as I, study the, as I study the Bible, these are the ones who Jesus will judge in the following way. He says in Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the son who does the will of my father in heaven, only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now that ought to be convicting. And it should be convicting to us. Because they are, I mean, and it should convict others. It may not be you, but it should be to others. They have that outward appearance. They say the white words and they say, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that. But they don't have that fruit. They don't have that heart. It's all just leaves. And Jesus is going to judge them harshly. Now, if you as a Christian want to be fruitful, if that's your desire, here are at least three ways you can do that. Number one, accept that apart from the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, you can't earn God's favor by your own effort. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and, not, and, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Number two, remain in Christ. Jesus said in chapter 15, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And then number three, do all things, everything that you do, whether it's work, whether it's at home, whether it's here, whether it's playing sports, jogging, whatever it may be, do it not to glorify yourselves, but for the sole purpose of glorifying God through your love of Jesus Christ. Check out what it says in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Based on each gift 
each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. I believe one of the lessons we can learn from verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14 is the displeasure God has towards whom God has towards those who make themselves out to be something they're not. It's only a matter of time before God exposes the hypocrite in order to spare others from being deceived. Now with the time we have left, I want to look at the last, our last story here, what happened later on that day. Follow along as I pick up in, in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it, made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Later that day, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and, temp and enters into the outer temple, into the outer temple complex. And when he gets there, he just completely and utterly starts going berserk. He starts just, just destroying the place. Let me show you an image, another image here that I have that will give you a better description of what we're talking about here. Okay, this is Herod's temple. This is the temple that... Uh, that we're talking about here. And I'll be covering some, some points about this in just a minute. But what we see in verses 15 through 19 is that Jesus, when he gets into the temple, he throws out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers tables and chairs of those selling doves. And he wouldn't permit anyone to carry goods to the temple complex. And during the entire time, there isn't any indication in Mark or in any of the other Gospels that anyone tried to stop him. No one tried to say, wait, wait, Jesus, stop, stop. No one tried to hold his hands. No one tried to, to restrain him. Evidently, this is, this is, I mean, this is what's so amazing about Jesus. There was something in his eyes, something these people were seeing in his eyes there was something in his face, something in his countenance that kept men from challenging him. Well, in the following verse, we're told why Jesus reacted this way. First, notice that he tells them that he began to teach them. Now, he wasn't scolding them. He wasn't necessarily reprimanding them as we would with our kids when they mess up. I mean, when one of the kids that live in my house, when they mess up and do something they're not supposed to be doing, it's very easy for us to, as parents to be like, 
what are you doing? You messed up and I mean, what's wrong with you? And you know, fix this or fix that and you know, go apologize and you know, where it's very, very easy for us to scold. And but this isn't what Jesus was doing here. No, Jesus uses this opportunity to instruct them. And then the only thing he uses during this period of instruction is scripture found in the Old Testament. The first thing he does is quote from um, Isaiah 56, verse 7, to explain to them what the temple was meant for. He says, my house will be, a, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The main purpose of the temple was for it to be a house of prayer of all nations. It was supposed to be a house, that a prayer that people would come to, Jew or Gentile, from around the world to come and worship God. Now, the court of the Gentiles, here we have only the Jews were allowed in this area. Number nine, as you can see, was the women's courtyard. This is the area that the women were allowed to. But again, they'd have to be Jewish women. And I, and I remember seeing a picture that was only this section here. The rest of the area was open to Jewish men. Now in this area here, only the priests, only the Jewish priests were allowed into this area here. All this other area here, outside, outside that, that main temple area was the Gentiles' courtyard. And it was there that the religious leaders had set up shop. Now the court of the Gentiles was the largest part of the temple complex. The design of the temple included this place for Gentiles to congregate because God had called Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, to be a blessing of all, to all nations. And then, as, as, as we see in our verse here in verse um, 17, he quotes from Jeremiah 17, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 7, 11, to tell those that were in charge of the temple that they had turned it into a place now. They had turned this area into a place where thieves feel safe. And that's what a den of thieves was. It was a place where thieves feel protected and safe. At this temple, in this area, the court of the Gentiles had been made into a stockyard for commercial purposes. Due to their greed and their hatred for, their, for the Gentiles, the religious leaders who ran the temple misused this area for a lucrative source of income. They were getting rich. They were making their, fat, their wallets fat from all the selling and all the buying and all the cheating that was going on in this area. Now is that, again, a good witness to the Gentiles? Is that what God ordained or God wanted this temple to be? No, it wasn't. The animals were being sold at a premium, at a premium because the people needed them. And the exchange rates were extortionate. They were cheating people, they were robbing people. 
Well, this is the area that, it's a pretty big area. I mean, again, we're not specifically told what part, and it could have been the whole part. Jesus just starts going wild in this area. Now, if you were one of the religious leaders, what would go through your head? What would go through your mind as you see Jesus flipping tables, you know, letting these doves go, not letting people leave? What would go through your mind? Would you be like angry, like, oh my goodness, this guy Jesus, he's ruining our businesses. Who does he think he is? Well, it looks like the religious leaders didn't like the idea of this person who they already considered a troublemaker, who they already considered had called, you know, some of, some of the leaders that had come up from, from Jerusalem and that had met him up north, they, were, they already called him that he was, that he had a demon inside of that he was the king of demons or he was, a, I'm sorry, the prince of demons. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was a false prophet. They didn't like the fact that, that he was disrupting their business and calling them out on their fraud. So they began conniving for a way to get rid of him. Now it's important to note that it wasn't necessarily, in our passage here, it wasn't necessarily because they were losing, that might have been part of it. It wasn't because they were losing money. No, it wasn't because they were losing business. But because as the end of verse 18 says, Jesus was becoming a threat to the power and influence they had over the people. Now, I honestly believe that if Jesus Christ were to visit many of the churches in America today, you might see him reacting in a very similar way, in a very similar way that he did in the temple. I think you would see a lot of churches being used as places of revenue rather than places of worship. Where money, where making money is more important than making disciples of Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal, one of the, sorry, one of the goals here is to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus Christ. So that Christians, people that are, haven't been born again, unbelievers to come to know Jesus Christ and then for them to come and follow Jesus Christ, to understand his word, understand what the Bible says, understand so that, they've got to, so that they'll know him, have an intimate relationship with him, follow him, and then go out and make disciples themselves. It's a multiplication process. And I mentioned this before, I mean, it's not about keeping people here. It's about also just sending them out. But also, it's not about making money here. It's not about, you know, the church isn't a place to make people rich. That's not my goal here. You know, my goal isn't to go out, you know, eventually this church gets big to eventually get a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or Bugatti or whatever and, and have this, you know, multi-million dollar mansion. And as some pastors have been requesting their congregation for a jet plane and no that's not my goal you know I really hope and pray and Robin will always keep me help me keep me accountable with this stuff that um um you know I hope and pray again that we'll just be able to use whatever funds the Lord blesses us with 
to bless others with, missionaries, organizations, um, to just, again, maintain sustainability here. You know, uh, in case you weren't aware, I mean, one of the, we just recently are financially supporting a prison ministry. I know the guy that, that runs it, and he goes to the prisons, and he shares the gospel, he gives out Bibles. And I'm very happy with, with our little house, three-bedroom house that we have, and, and uh, the car, you know, we have enough cars for Robin to drive to work and myself and Jacob to get to school. But even if we had one, I know that we'd be okay. You know, it'd be hard, but I know we'd be fine. But my, my, my point is that I'm not here. I didn't start a church. I didn't begin a ministry. I didn't follow Christ to become rich. If my example is, if our example is Jesus, then we should see him and say, now, was, was he a rich guy? Was he, did he, was he wearing jewelry? Was he wearing the finest clothes? Was he, did he have horses to ride around? No. Again, he walked everywhere. He asked, he borrowed. He lived off people's charity. That was his life. And I've read, you know, I've read quotes from a lot of pastors who say that when God, you know, God's blessing is for you to be rich and to have money. And I don't know, for me, that it, it, it kind of breaks my heart because that's not what it's about. We have to look at the scriptures. We have to understand that your church is bigger than that. It's greater than that. It's a place where people come to worship the eternal, all-powerful, living God so that we may know him in order to glorify him. Let me repeat that. It's a place where people come to worship the eternal, all-powerful, living God so that we may know him in order to glorify him. Now, it's also important to point out that Jesus reacted not out of a fit of rage, but out of a righteous indignation. Let me go back to my original screen here. Not out of a fit of rage, but out of righteous indignation. Rage, anger, is a violent emotion that expresses itself in actions or words that can be potentially that can potentially cause harm to oneself or others. I think you know what I'm talking about. How many of us have been in that in a fit of rage where it's just out of control? Man, I I'll be honest with you, I've been there. Robin has seen those ugly sides, that, that ugly side of me. It's, it's not pretty at all. I used to, when I was a young man, I used to believe that anger was a gift until I realized the damage it causes. Someone once said, getting angry can sometimes feel like leaping into a wonderfully responsive sports car, gunning the motor, 
taking off at a high speed and then discovering the brakes are out. Again, if you were just to ask my wife, I'm sure she would agree that many times my anger, my rage has gone from zero to 60 in seconds. And sometimes all it takes is, is just, I'm triggered by a word sometimes, just a phrase. And, and, and again, I, I'm human, I, I mess up, I'm not perfect. Again, I, 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 once I recognize it, man, I grieve. I, I, you know, I apologize and I ask God, you know, I'm sorry. Just keep working on me. Keep changing me. I don't want to be this way. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5 that this kind of anger is from the flesh and contrary, contrary to the Holy Spirit of God. This is why it ought to grieve us when we act this way. If you consider yourself, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a believer, and you're acting this way, it's not coming from the Spirit of God, who we ought to be controlled by, but it's coming from your own flesh, and it's contrary to what God desires for you. Now, on the other hand, What's righteous indignation? What is that? Righteous indignation is an anger that one feels when confronted with sinful behavior and unmistakable justice, yet it's under control. Good examples of righteous indignation, how you, this, this type of anger would be, you know, your feeling towards child abuse, racism, or maybe even abortion. Now, there are several other good examples in the Old Testament where we see God displaying his righteous indignation. But this here is what Jesus is displaying at the temple. This, what Jesus is doing here, wasn't, he wasn't doing this out of a fit of rage and angry and, and anger. This was righteous indignation. And it's an anger again, that should stir us up when we see it, when we hear about it, hear about it, and when we're confronted by it. I've always, I've always said, I've always, people have asked me, how come you never went into law, law enforcement? I, I tried when I was back home, but it didn't work out. But then as I thought about it, I never continued that route. Because I think as a law enforcement, and I, I mean, I give them a bunch of credit. I, you know what, I, I, I commend them. I, I think they're doing a great job. Anybody that's, that's law enforcement, because of all the stuff they had to see and all the stuff they had to experience, you know, going into homes with domestic violence, going home with, you know, going into homes that may, you know, where they may see child abuse and, and just horrible things. And I'm glad. I'm blessed that the Lord spared me from that because you know I don't think I would have been ready at that time to see that castle. I'm sure I would have reacted out of a fit of rage out of my flesh I probably would have ended up in prison and jail you know if I would have seen something like that but again righteous indignation is a feeling that we should be stirred that should stir us 
to say something, to do something. But again, saying it and doing it in a way that's under control. Because, because we have a tendency, we do have a tendency to react from the flesh. And when we do, we have to heed the words found in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So when we say and do something that stirs us, it should, the ultimate goal is to, be, is to accomplish God's righteousness. Not our own, not what we want, not what we desire, but to accomplish God's righteousness. Now as I begin to conclude, here are five lessons we can learn from these 19 verses concerning Jesus' first couple days in Jerusalem. Number one, Jesus chose to place himself in a position where he would need to partner with us in order to see his will, work throughout, work, his will worked out through us. Number two, one day soon, Jesus will come back, and not on a donkey, but with power and glory to reign as king. Number three, God finds no pleasure in those who have the appearance of being something they're not. Number four, Church ought to be a place where people come to worship the eternal, all-powerful, living God so that they may know Him in order to glorify Him. And lastly, number five, when we are confronted with sin and injustice, we ought to react with, with a righteous indignation and not out of a fleshly rage that may cause us to sin. So here's my full summary, my, my, how I would summarize these, maybe these five lessons into a couple sentences. Very soon, Jesus will come back with all his power and all his glory to establish his earthly kingdom and reign as king. Until that day arrives, God desires that his people, that his children be active participants of his will in order to prepare us to reign with him. And as his people, our lives ought to display evidence of fruitfulness in the way we gather as a church to worship God and in the way we react when we are confronted with sin and injustice. So let me ask those that are listening and hearing this, are you ready and willing to be used by God? Do you want do you desire to one day reign with him? Do you feel that pull and that call to be, you know, do you feel pulling called from God to be his child? Do you one day want to reign with Christ? If you're ready and willing to be used and want to reign with God, Jesus must be the Lord of your life. And the only way he can be the Lord of your life 
The only way you can do he can be that for you is if you accept him into your life. If you see your need for him, if you really from the from the depths of your heart you understand that it's only through him can you accomplish anything. It's only through him you can be saved. The only way you can do that is to be born again. So as we close in prayer, and that's your heart, and that's your desire, and you want to be born again, and you want to live for Christ, and you, and that's the, and I'm not just asking that you pray, and because a prayer is going to save you, and it's got to come from the heart. Bible says that if you believe with your heart and if you confess with your mouth you will be saved. Anybody can say a prayer but if it's not coming from the heart then it's just empty. And if that's your desire and that's your heart and you want God to be the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of your life I mean, in a minute I'm going to lead you into a prayer. again you have to be willing and you have to be ready let's pray Lord Heavenly Father we come before you to thank you for the lessons that we've learned here today Lord showing us how showing us Jesus coming into the temple coming into Jerusalem showing us that we can be active how we can be used by by you to be active participants Lord and what you did on that you know just that that sun that palm sunday and and also what you did the following day on monday and you do you reveal to us so much you've shown us what it means to be your children and we thank you so much for that lord lord we have a heart and desire not to be hypocrites, not to be those people that just appear to be one thing from the outside, but not really be, not, not, not really have any fruit. Lord, we want to be fruitful people. Help us, Lord. Give us the strength that we need. Lord, let us hold on to you. Let us be. Um, part of you, Lord. And the more we grow in you, the more, I know, Lord, like you said, we just, we will, we'll just, we'll bear fruit naturally. It won't be forced, it'll just be natural. And if you're listening and hearing again, and you're just, you're ready to come to a place where you're willing and to accept Jesus into your heart. All you have to do is just, from the, from the bottom of your heart, from, some, from, from sincerity, from the deep sincerity, just pray this, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I have fallen short 
And I know that without Jesus, there is no reconciliation. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I believe he died on he died and rose again on the third day to give me eternal life. Lord, I accept your forgiveness. And I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may follow you and know you for the rest of my life. Lord, use me and guide me. Thank you, Lord, for, your, for making me your child. And for all those that are here, Lord, I just ask that can you use them in a mighty way, that they'll continue to bear fruit, they'll continue to grow as Christians, and they'll continue to, to honor you in everything that they do. They may glorify you and praise you in, in everywhere and every, in everything that they do, and everywhere they're at. Make it clear to them, make, make it plain to them open doors to where it is that you want them to serve and where the, where those gifts that they, you've blessed them with can be applied. We pray for their families again this week, Lord. Protect them, protect their friends and all those they love. And we do, we pray, Lord, use us. Use them. Bless this next time of fellowship. Bless this next time. And may we honor you with our lips and our conversations, Lord. We love you so much. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.